as well, is what I found is that it's become a very safe place for youth who are wrestling through different things to share openly and honestly about what's going on in their life, which I think is just so healthy uh, for kids to be able to do that and really hear the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel wash over the things that they're sorting through in their life. And so really appreciate that about his ministry. So David, thank you for bringing us God's word thank this you. morning. Lord's blessing on you, brother. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. So good morning. Um, this morning, we are going to be studying through Daniel 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in one of the chairs in front of you that you can use. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours as our free gift to you. We just ask that you read it. Um, now, I believe for the red Bible, the pages, yep, there they are right there. 739 for the Red Bible, uh, etc. Um, and then if you are in a different Bible, we are, the book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. Um, it is after Ezekiel and before Hosea. And if you're flipping through and you hit Matthew, you have gone too far. So you need to turn back the other way. All right. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the book of Daniel, or Daniel 3. Uh, this is a book written by the prophet Daniel, and it revolves around four Israelites during the Babylonian exile. Uh, so far in Daniel, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have been taken into slavery after Babylon invaded and conquered Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, the four of them have been trained to be wise men in Babylon during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, while this was happening, Nebuchadnezzar had this like crazy dream that he didn't know what it meant. And so he went to his wise men to tell him what it meant. But because he didn't trust them very much, uh, for good reason, he says, not only do you have to interpret the dream, you have to tell me what the dream actually was. And uh, none of them could do that for, for obvious reasons. And so Nebuchadnezzar went on a little bit of a killing spree. Um, and Daniel got caught up in the crosshairs of that. And so he asked for a little more time time to pray about it and ask God to reveal this mystery to him. And thanks be to God, he did. And so Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and the interpretation. And after that, Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, in positions of authority in the nation of Babylon. Okay, so that will lead us up to Daniel 3. But before we really dig into it, would you all pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come to you in confession that um, we don't really bring anything to the table, God. Um, we come knowing that every good thing and every great thing in us is from you, Lord. And so that I pray that as we go through this text, as we read about this story, that you can identify the things that have become idols in our lives and that you can remove them from us, Lord. Um, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so as Dan mentioned, I'm the youth dude in this church. That's my official title. Um, and uh, as the youth dude, it's really important for me to be able to connect with the students of this church, um, which is great because I and the students share a lot of the same interests, okay? I love sports. I sang in the choir. I played in band, and I watch a lot of movies. And um, I also love playing video games. And praise 
God that my love for video games has actually become a connecting point to students in my job. It's really great. Um, and I remember that there was this one time when I was playing a game uh, so that I could minister to our students a little better. And uh, that's a lie. I was doing it because I wanted to. Um, and uh, I was playing this game, which takes place in ancient Greece. Um, and in this game, uh, there's giant statues of the Greek gods. And there's a huge gladiatorial stadium that doubles as a temple with giant statues of the greatest gladiators. And as I was playing, I remember thinking to myself very specifically how sad it was that the Greeks wasted so much time and energy and, and money, you know, building these statues and celebrating a blood sport. And I remember being very grateful that we don't live in a culture like that today, that we don't build giant statues or monuments uh, to the champions of a violent, brutal sport. And then... As I was driving down Lombardi, I saw large replicas of the Lombardi trophy in people's yards. I saw huge bronze statues of the champions of football. And then I saw it, our giant temple, Lambeau Field. And I was punched in the face with my hypocrisy as I realized that we do live in a culture that builds monuments and worships false gods and the champions of a sport. You see, in Daniel 3, we are going to read about a man who has built idols physically and in his heart. And he does these things to worship them instead of God. And it's easy to read this story and think that Nebuchadnezzar's struggles are not our struggles. Okay, you probably, I hope, don't have a giant gold statue in your backyard. But nevertheless, the way that our culture and the way that we worship false gods and create idols in our hearts is no different than what we are reading about today. See, the fact of the matter is that our sin nature drives us to worship anything and everything other than God, even good things, especially good things. But if our sin drives us to create idols out of anything, the question I want to answer today is how do we resist turning good God-given things into the objects of our idolatry. And through today's passage, I want us to look specifically at two things that we often turn into our idols. God's given greatness and God's given messengers. So first, let's look at what we do with God's given greatness or the greatness that God gives us. In verse 1, it starts and says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Let's pause there. So in verses 1 through 7, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the known world, has decided to make an enormous golden statue. Okay, to give you a point of reference as to the size of this statue, which is 60 cubits tall and 6 cubits wide, um, it would be about three times taller than the ceiling of this room. Okay, so it is enormous. And Nebuchadnezzar creates this giant statue and commands that any time there is music, everyone must bow down and worship it. Now for me, I've always wondered what the statue looked like. Okay, I've wondered, is it, is it a statue of Nebuchadnezzar? Is it just like a pillar, kind of like the Washington Monument? Is it a representation of one of the Babylonian gods? I don't know. It doesn't really say, but to be honest, it probably doesn't matter because the importance of the statue wasn't what it looked like. The importance of the statue is what it represented, which is the power, riches, and skill of the Babylonian empire. It represented the greatness of Babylon, and as its king, the greatness of the Babylonian empire reflected the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, one of Nebuchadnezzar's major idols was his greatness. And the trouble with this idol is that it was true. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar is great. No one denied that Nebuchadnezzar was a great and powerful king. 
And because everyone knew that he was great, because everyone told him that he was great, because there was undeniable proof that Nebuchadnezzar was great, he took credit for his greatness. See, Nebuchadnezzar reveled in the praise that people gave him because of his greatness. And Nebuchadnezzar worshipped his greatness above God who gave it to him. And we know that his greatness has become his idol because of the way Nebuchadnezzar reacts when three men refuse to worship the statue representing his greatness. See, Nebuchadnezzar enters into a furious rage. He overreacts, right? In verse 15, first, he makes the claim that he is as great as the gods when he says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In verse 19, which we'll get to in a second, he orders that the furnace be heated seven times more than normal. In verse 20, he orders that the three men be tied up even though they were not resisting. Nebuchadnezzar built an idol, an idol that he expected everyone to worship. And when three men didn't worship the idol, Nebuchadnezzar majorly overreacted. And I think this is something that we can all relate to. Now, we might not be building giant gold statues, like I said before, but we do build our own idols idols that we want everyone to worship. Okay, one example for me is what I'm doing right now. Preaching from God's word is an incredible privilege. There is, there's a weightiness to it. And not everyone is asked to do what I'm doing right now. And so when I was asked, at first I was shocked. Okay, I couldn't believe it. And then I felt very humbled and extremely unworthy to the task. And these are all good reactions, right? I am unworthy to the task. But then I had this dilemma. Okay, I, in my head I was like, should I tell people about it? On one hand, I don't want to be proud. I don't want to become boastful about the fact that I've been asked to preach. But on the other hand, I know that I need a lot of prayer. And so, as I was wrestling with this, I decided that I would tell some people about it. And then those people started encouraging me, which I liked. And so then I told more people about it. And since everyone in this church is so nice, no one said, you know, this is your first sermon, it's probably going to be really bad. No, no one said that. I was flooded with compliment after compliment. And then I started thinking, yeah, I do deserve this. I am going to be great. And I built myself an idol. And then God reminded me that he is king. And he crushed my idol, which, you know, hurt. <laughs> and the thing is, the point that I'm making here is, is that preaching this sermon had become my giant gold statue. What is your giant gold statue? What idols have you created to worship your greatness? And how do you react when people don't? You know, maybe the thing that you use to point to your greatness is your income or your job. Maybe it's your house or your kids. Maybe it's your grades 
or your social media presence. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But here's what I do know. The problem is probably not the thing itself. You see, preaching was my idol. But preaching is not bad. Okay, telling people that I was preaching was not bad. The problem is that I took credit for what God alone can do. You see, I bring nothing to the table. And neither do you. Your income, your job, your kids, your grades, and your popularity, and generally your greatness was given to you by God. So what if, instead of using God's given greatness to worship ourselves, we used it to worship the one from whom all greatness comes? You see, whenever we do something great, whenever we are great, it is only because God has made us great through Jesus. So the next time you do something great, the next time you are a part of something amazing, then build a monument, make a post on social media, tell everyone you know about this great thing in worship of the God who made it happen. Because if not for Christ, there would be no greatness. So we turn God's given greatness into our idols. And we also, in a more subtle way, turn God's given messengers into our idols. After Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's question, asking which God can save you from my hand, the three answer him. In verse 16, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace." Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the, from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. 
The hair of their heads was not singed. The cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. Therefore, I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage at their statement, according to the law, throws them into a fiery furnace to burn them alive for their disobedience. And then Nebuchadnezzar is astonished because they don't die. They are not burned, and the bonds that immobilize them are gone. And then, even though he threw three people into the furnace, there is now four. And to quote VeggieTales... One of them is really shiny. So Nebuchadnezzar tells the three to come out. He praises God and promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and declares God's greatness to the entire Babylonian empire, which is amazing. But there is a subtle and dangerous idol worship happening at the end of this story. See, Nebuchadnezzar gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego partial credit for the message that God had brought him. And this happens throughout the book of Daniel, where the king gives God's messengers credit for God's message. Okay, in this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are first given credit for God's offensive message. Nebuchadnezzar tells the three men that they need to bow before the idol or they will be burned alive. And he says, who is the God who can save you from my hands? And God's messengers answer. They answer the question with God's message. Verse 17, they say, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, the message from God is that God is greater than Nebuchadnezzar and that only God is worthy of worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as God's messengers, faithfully deliver that message. And Nebuchadnezzar, instead of bowing to or rejecting God's authority blamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for God's offensive message. And Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the fiery furnace. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger? Well, Nebuchadnezzar tries to burn them alive. But the point, the, the thing is, we, we have this phrase because if you are offended by a messenger's message, it's not their fault, right? They're just a mouthpiece to the one who sent them. Credit for the offensiveness goes to the one who sent the message. So don't shoot the messenger. 
like Nebuchadnezzar does. Now, on the flip side of the coin, Nebuchadnezzar not only gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego credit for the offensive messenger that God is greater than him, but he also gives them credit for the glorious message that only God can save us from death. See, in verses 19 through 30, Nebuchadnezzar starts and is outraged by the message that God has greater authority than him. And then the king shoots the messenger, or in our case, throws them into a furnace. And then God sends someone who Nebuchadnezzar describes as an angel and the son of the gods to save them from death by fire. And Nebuchadnezzar praises God and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 28 where he gives them credit for their faithfulness to God. It's subtle. But this time, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't shoot the messengers. He worships them. Nebuchadnezzar fails to give God full credit for his message. He either shoots or worships God's messenger, depending on if he likes the message or not. And don't we too often do the same thing. You know, when a preacher offends us because the gospel is offensive, we leave that church and find a church that gives us the message we want to hear. When a pastor tells us that the consequences of our sin is an eternal death in the fires of hell, we look for a pastor that talks only about God's love. And when a friend tells us that if we really love Jesus, we would stop betraying his love with our lifestyle of sin. We say that they are judging us. When we're offended by God's message, we blame the messenger and claim that our Jesus would never say anything that offensive. Please don't shoot the messenger for the offensive message that God gives them. Okay, if God's message is offending you, then bow to his authority or reject it. But don't try to love God and hate God's messengers. Now, on the flip side of the coin, again, please don't worship the messenger for the message that God gives them. This can be more subtle, but think about the way that we treat people like John Piper or Tim Keller or Charles Spurgeon or C.S. Lewis. You know, we say things like, I was saved because of them. Or they really convicted me today. Or Piper's book changed my life. Or I really need more Francis Chan in my life. You know, how often do we turn to a book written by a man for wisdom before the Bible? How often do we go to a leader of the church to help us with our struggles before we pray? And I'm not saying that reading books or going to church leaders is bad. It's good. It's very good. We should do those things. You see, God has gifted his messengers to give us a very good message with power and authority. But it is only a good message. It is only good news when we understand that it's not me, Dan Jackson, John Piper, Tim Keller, Charles Spurgeon, R.C. Sproul, C.S. Lewis, or even the Apostle Paul who saves us. It is none of them who convicts us or changes our life. It is not God's messengers that we need more of. It's the one the messengers are talking about. It's Jesus and only Jesus. 
So don't worship God's given messengers. Worship the one the messengers are talking about. Because if not for Christ, there would be no message. And the message that all the messengers are giving, the message that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gave is that we all broke the king's law and have been sentenced to death. We have all failed to worship the king's greatness. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who was unworthy of the worship he was demanding, God, the king of kings, is the only one worthy of that worship. And we were sentenced to death because of our crimes against God. Not by being thrown into a fiery furnace, but by being thrown into the fires of hell for all of eternity. But God, who is great and rich in mercy, has sent messenger after messenger to give the message that he will save us from death, that he will forgive us of our crimes. And many, many years after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God sent another messenger who is unlike anyone before him or after. This messenger, whose name was Jesus, spoke about God with power, and he told people that only God could save them, and he performed miracles. And as people were starting to believe that Jesus might be the one that everyone was talking about, Jesus showed that he was not just one of God's messengers, but that he was also God's message. The message that if we have faith in God's promise and authority to save us from death, then we would be forgiven of our crimes and live forever. Jesus, the fourth person in the furnace, is the living embodiment of God's salvation message. And Jesus is the only one who can save us from death. Not even Nebuchadnezzar could deny this when he said that no other God can rescue this way. Only Jesus can save you from death. Do you believe? Now, I say this a lot, but um, as working with the youth, uh, one of the reasons why I love working with them, and I'll continue saying this, I love working with our youth students because of their uh, brutal honesty, right? Uh, they keep me really humble. Okay, to give you guys some examples of the way the students have humbled me, um, uh, my favorite example by far, I shaved my beard once, and uh, when I came in, they were constantly telling me how terrible it looked. Okay, I walked in the first time, and they're all like, oh, David, what happened to your face? And I was like, I know, I know, I'm so sorry, don't look at me, I'm ugly. And then, you know, there was another time when I was with a student and uh, they were talking and they pulled out their phone and they're like, hey, let me show you my favorite picture of you. And they showed it to me and they're like, I love this picture because it makes you look so derpy. And I was like, I, I don't even know what that means. But it doesn't sound like a compliment. <laughs> you know, and then uh, another time, you know, the, the youth students, they're, they're just constantly reminding me how unfunny I am. You know, they laugh at me when I try to use their cool kids lingo and talk about shipping someone or, you know, call something lit. Yeah, people, you're laughing at me now, and that's, that's good. So the youth students, right, they ensure that I am never tempted to worship my greatness, which I appreciate most of the time, all right? But 
along with their constant reminder that I'm not that great, um, their brutal honesty also encourages me that every good thing in me comes from Christ. You see, yearly as a youth group, we have something we call an encouragement night. And this is uh, where everyone writes a note, uh, an encouraging note to everyone anonymously. Uh, And I have some of the notes that that were written to me here. Um, So this one says, David, beard plus five points. Bears fan, minus 50 points. Good teaching, plus 500 points. So that, that one makes me laugh a lot. Um, then this one, it says, David, you are kind, oh so kind. Your love for God flows out of you faster than almost anyone else I know. Or this one, which says, David, great friend. You know, at the beginning of this message, I asked the question, how do we resist turning good, God-given things into the objects of our idolatry? And the answer is by recognizing that every good thing comes from Jesus. You see, these encouraging notes and all the other ones were about things that don't come from me because nothing good comes from me. Remember, I'm a derpy, unfunny, not cool, immature, selfish Bears fan who would be destined for the fires of hell if not for Christ. But thanks to Christ, people don't see me. They see Jesus who saved me. Jesus who made me a kind, loving, great friend who gets to give the message that Jesus will save anyone who believes in him as their Lord and Savior. Praise be to God, the only one worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you and praise you for what you've done for us, God. Thank you that you don't expect us to be great. You don't require it um, at all, but instead you provide it for us, Lord so that we may know that everything good in us comes from you. Uh, And we thank you so much that all you ask is that we believe in you and that we trust in you. You are truly great, God, and we thank you for it. pray that in your name. Amen.